This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, the COVID pandemic amplifies inequality in America. It's powerful, pervasive, and growing. So what can be done? By some measures, the gap between the haves and the have-nots today is bigger than it has been since the Great Depression. And divisions between race and gender shape every aspect of American life. The pandemic only made the divisions so much worse and more obvious. President Biden put equity at the center of his pitch for a new $2 trillion American infrastructure and job plan. Too often investments have failed to meet the needs of marginalized communities left behind. But can he get another massive spending bill through Congress? We'll talk with Cecilia Rouse, the head of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. We'll look at global access to the COVID vaccine with Dr. Seth Berkley, co-head of COVAX, the largest immunization project in world history. New York Congressman Richie Torres' South Bronx district is the poorest in the country. We'll talk with him. Jonathan Nez, the head of the Navajo Nation, joins us to discuss the impact COVID is having on Native American communities. Sister Norma Pimentel runs the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. We'll ask her about the crushing humanitarian crisis among migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Plus, have Americans become too complacent with COVID? We'll check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. On this Easter Sunday, we'll take a special look at some of the many inequities exacerbated by COVID-19. We begin with the virus itself. Last week, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky spoke about her fear of impending doom and pleaded with Americans to just hold on a little longer. The CDC also gave vaccinated Americans a green light for air travel, but the TSA reported the highest number of airline passengers since the pandemic began. 18% of Americans have been fully vaccinated. Case numbers are still rising in 27 states and Washington, D.C. In some of those places, the largest number of new cases is among children for the first time. We want to begin with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer and he joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. you Good know, morning. Doctor, we are vaccinating 4 million people a day, but when you look at the infection levels, do you see a fourth wave? 
I don't think it's going to be a true fourth wave. I think we've probably um, delayed the point at which we can get this behind us for the summer, but we haven't forestalled that opportunity. I think with the rate of vaccination that we're uh, having right now, we're vaccinating, as you said, 4 million people a day. I think that's probably going to reach 5 million people a day. And the level of immunity that we already have in the population, we vaccinated more than 100 million Americans. We probably infected about 130 million Americans. So you have somewhere around 200 million Americans that have some level of immunity in them already. I think that there's enough immunity in the population that you're not going to see a true fourth wave of infection. What we're seeing is pockets of infection around the country, particularly in younger people who haven't been vaccinated and also in school-aged children. If you look what's happening in Michigan and Minnesota and Massachusetts, for example, you're seeing outbreaks in schools and infections in social co cohorts that haven't been exposed to the virus before. Maybe we're doing a better job sheltering. Now they're out and about getting exposed to the virus and they're getting infected. So the infection is changing its contours in terms of who's being stricken by it right now. You had long been a proponent of reopening for in-person learning. Given what you're seeing now, do you think schools need to shut back down? I don't. Schools aren't inherently safe, but they can be made more safe. I think we need to uh, stick to strict mitigation in the schools. So schools that use masks, schools that can implement some kind of distancing, as one epidemiologist referred to it this week, uh, go the full Harry Potter and try to keep students within defined social cohorts so that they're not intermingling in large groups. If you're taking those measures in schools, I think the schools can be made more safe. And I think the benefits of being in school outweigh the risks. But we need to be cognizant of the fact that schools are a risk factor. Children are vulnerable to the infection and that the schools can become focal points for community spread if we're not careful. I think we're seeing some of that in Massachusetts right now where the greatest proportion of the new infections are among school-aged children. You're seeing the same kind of statistics in Michigan as well. Both states recently reopened schools and I don't think it's a coincidence. Dr. Fauci has said on this program first quarter of 2022 for vaccinations. And then this week, he said, by the end of this year, we should have enough information to safely vaccinate kids of virtually any age. What do you think of this timeline? Is it moving faster than anticipated? I think it's moving quickly. I don't know that it's faster than what we anticipated. We're going to have data, um, I think, that's going to inform the FDA's ability to make a decision on the emergency use of the vaccine in 12 to 15 for the Pfizer vaccine. So Pfizer, as you know, the company I'm on the board of, as you mentioned, recently unveiled clinical data, a clinical trial of 2,200 kids aged 12 to 15 that looked quite encouraging. That data is going to be submitted to the FDA. The FDA is going to be in a position to issue an emergency use authorization for that age group. I think that could potentially come in time to have the vaccine vaccine available for 12 to 15 before the school year. And I think the way to think about trying to vaccinate children is vaccinate different social cohorts. Do we vaccinate high school age kids? Right now, the Pfizer vaccine is approved down to 16. So that gets you into the high school age set. Do we start to vaccinate into the middle school? ASIP is ultimately going to have to, the, the advisory committee to CDC, which is ASIP, is ultimately going to have to make a recommendation on where they think the vaccine should be used in children. And they're going to think about it in terms of the social networks and the social cohorts where they want to introduce the vaccine. High school being the most obvious and perhaps middle school. But I do think we're going to be in a position to vaccinate 12 and above before the fall. I think younger than that could take more time because you're going to want to test a lot of different doses to try to find the lowest possible dose that mm -hmm. still is providing a uh, robust immune response to kids. You know, I I'm sure you've seen this too in your social media feeds. There are a lot of people traveling with their kids right now for spring break. People who didn't celebrate Christmas are celebrating right now, even though Dr. Fauci on this program said it is high risk to walk into an airport. Do you think health officials are, are, are losing their influence at this point? 
I think you need to be careful as a public health official to issue guidance that you know the public is going to largely follow. You don't want to be so out of step with the aspirations and, and where the public is and what the public's going to ultimately engage in that the, the guidance just gets ignored. You have to issue the guidance in the context of what the public's willing to do. I do think it's important that people like Dr. Fauci and the CDC director urge caution. I think we should continue to be cautious. We're still in a high prevalence environment. We still have these variants circulating that we don't fully understand. We don't know whether people are getting reinfected by some of these new variants. We should have that information, but we don't. So there's a lot we don't understand about this virus right now, and we don't want to be in a position where we extend the, the epidemic because we weren't prudent about the steps that we were taking right now. That said, people are sensing that there's less risk overall. As people get vaccinated, they, they feel themselves that they're at less risk, and they are based on the vaccination. And so they're willing to start engaging in the things that they put off for a full year. So we need to recognize that and I think issue the guidance in a way that people can conform to it against you know, their aspirations, which is mm -hmm. that they want to see family again, they want to start socializing, they want to start traveling a little bit. Uh, last night, Johnson & Johnson said it would assume full responsibility of vaccine manufacturing at this plant in Baltimore that apparently ruined about 15 million doses of a COVID vaccine. Uh, our Sarah Cook is reporting that it was at the orders of the Biden administration. Any headline like this hurts confidence. Um, how significant is this problem? Well, I don't think it should hurt confidence in people's perception of the safety of the vaccine. This was ultimately detected uh, as, as part of the quality checks that they do in that facility. I don't think they should have been manufacturing two different viral vector vaccines in the same facility. Um, viruses are sticky. Their genomic material transfers easily. We saw this with the CDC in terms of their failed rollout of their diagnostic tests because they were um, manipulating too many viruses in one facility and there was some cross-contamination. It does appear to be the case that some component of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they were also manufacturing in this facility, got into the Johnson & Johnson mm -hmm. vaccine. That is the public reporting from officials in the administration. Yeah. They shouldn't have been doing that in the same facility. I think what this underscores is we just don't have a lot of excess biomanufacturing capacity in this country okay. that we had to use that one facility to do these both things. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, thanks as always for your analysis. Thanks. Face the Nation will be right back with Dr. Cecilia Rouse, Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Friday, there was good news in the jobs report as more than 900,000 jobs were added back in March. Overall, we're still at 8.4 million fewer jobs than a year ago. Dr. Cecilia Rouse is chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors and says that improvement is due to the acceleration in vaccinations and schools reopening, which allowed some women to reenter the workforce. We spoke with her Saturday.
What we saw in the last month is that there was an improvement in labor force participation that was entirely due to women. And at the same time, when we look at the job gains, it was widely it was widely shared. So it was, there were gains across the economy. So inside this jobs bill that the uh, Biden administration is pushing, there's about 25 billion for building or upgrading child care centers and expanded tax credits to incentivize child care centers being built by private employers. How is this supposed to work? What the jobs plan recognizes is that care is an important part of our infrastructure if workers are going to be able to go back to work. So the idea is to provide incentives for uh, people, for child care centers to be built where there are none, and also for employers to develop their own child care systems so that it makes it that much easier for their workers to be able to drop off their children, know that their children are being well taken care of, while they're able to also work outside the home and do the kind of work that they find fulfilling or that they want to do this $2 trillion ask, only about 5% of the funding goes to infrastructure. Um, viewers can take a look at the breakdown here of all the programs that are uh, called for funding on. Um, but of the $620 billion for infrastructure upgrades, it includes incentivizing purchases of electric cars. Can you honestly call this a focus on building roads and bridges? I think it's important that we upgrade our definition of infrastructure, one that meets the needs of a 21st century economy. And that means we need to be funding and incentivizing those structures that allow us to maximize our economic activity. So incentivizing electric vehicles is really important because we need to be addressing climate change. If we think about the opportunity cost of not doing so, we're just going to keep paying for it. And we know that we need to be encouraging our industries to be tilting towards, you know, greener production, greener technologies. President Biden is throwing around this projection that the entire bill will create about 19 million jobs. What does that number come from? Which industries are going to do that hiring? So that's an estimate from Moody's Analytics, and it's we know that the, those jobs are going to be coming from uh, the, the traditional infrastructure. We can just call it traditional, the roads and bridges. So the pipe fitters, the electricians, those who will be paving the roads um, and building the bridges. But we also know that some of it's going to be coming from research and development. So the scientists and engineers will be thinking through the innovations that will ensure that our economy is being is, you know, is, is being smart and is developing solutions to the naughty problems that we need to solve if we're going to really uh, address climate change and be prepared to, you know, to continue yeah. to flourish as we go forward. But now that men and women are in the labor force, we need for our, our loved ones to be taken care of. Otherwise, women cannot go to work, as this pandemic has highlighted. That Moody's analysis says, though, in terms of jobs with the infrastructure plan, the economy recovers the jobs lost in the pandemic by early 2023, but it's not much different than without the plan. Um, the president has said raising taxes and corporations won't hurt the economy, but a slew of employers disagree. I'm sure you've seen these statements. Chamber of Commerce called this proposal dangerously misguided. They say the tax increases will make the U.S. less competitive. National Association of Manufacturers says it will fundamentally undermine our ability to lead this recovery. These are the employers that you need to create these jobs. The president believes that 
you know, everybody should be paying their fair share in taxes. In those that Moody's analysis that you cited, it, looking over a 10-year plan, the analysis incorporates both the investment parts of uh, the president's proposal, but also the corporate tax um, components as well. And on net, we see that there is an improvement in our economic growth. We see that there's an improvement in labor force participation. We see there's an increase in the number of jobs and a decrease in the unemployment rate. So net-net, we think that the, the president's proposals is go are good for the American economy, even including the corporate tax cuts. Uh, oh my gosh. So the even including the corporate tax increases. <laughs> So the corporate tax rate, as you're indicating, it would go up to 28 percent, probably even higher than that. Um, and taxes on corporate income earned overseas would also increase. This is 15 years of higher taxes to pay for eight years of spending. Can you really say it's not a, a cost? Typically, when one makes an investment, one pays for an investment up front and there are returns uh, that gather over time. And I would say that the reason why the president uh, is proposing these corporate tax increases is because that's just the right thing to do. He believes we should be, uh, you know, we should be in encouraging these corporations to pay their fair share. Uh, they all use the roads and bridges and the public goods that are going to be created by these investments. And they should be paying their fair share of the taxes in order for us to be able to do so. This past week, we had a number of corporations weigh in on this controversial uh, move in a number of states to change voting rights laws. The president said that he would like to see the all-star game move out of Georgia. And then the very next day, Major League Baseball did just that. Is the White House urging corporations to use their economic power to take political positions? Well, look, the president has said very strongly that he is opposed to these state laws restricting voting rights. He's called them the Jim Crow of the 21st century, uh, just, you know, period. Uh, in terms of these companies, um, they are exer exercising their right to, to vote with their feet. Uh, it's a little early to judge what the economic impact will be, uh, but um, they have a right to, to vote with their feet and to, and to express their, their dissatisfaction with the laws. But for a popcorn stand worker in Atlanta who just learned he's not going to be hired in July, I mean, this comes at a cost, does it not? There is undoubtedly going to be a cost. I think that was the point that the Major League Baseball was trying to make. Major League Baseball will, however, move its its game, and workers at another place will benefit. Uh, you know, that is exactly the message that Major League Baseball was trying to send. The president opposes these laws. He believes that uh, they are restrictive, they are discriminatory. Um, these these companies have the opportunity to vote with their feet, um, and they're using their economic power to dis express their dissatisfaction. Understood. Uh, Dr. Rouse, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Our full conversation with Dr. Rouse is on our website at facethenation.com. According to U.S. Census data, Democratic Congressman Richie Torres represents the poorest district in this country. That's in South Bronx, New York. Good morning to you, Congressman. It's an honor to be here. You have uh, some of the lowest vaccination rates in New York, and yet that super site at Yankee Stadium has been open since February. What is stalling vaccination? Well, the racial disparities in vaccination rates, for me, is more a consequence of vaccine access than vaccine hesitancy. And one of the greatest barriers to vaccine access is 
the digital divide, those in the Bronx who have no access to the internet, have much less access to information about vaccination sites and have no real ability to participate in online registration systems. So how do you quickly fix that problem? Because it sounds like what you're saying is the fact that Yankee Stadium's open doesn't mean anything because your constituents can't log on to make an appointment in the first place. We're making progress, but we have to rely heavily on community health centers, community-based institutions that can serve as credible messengers in places like the South Bronx. And I'm optimistic that we are making progress. This highly contagious New York variant uh, has hit your area of the city. Do you have any indications about how widespread it might be? Yeah, so my understanding is more than 70% of the coronavirus cases in New York City consist of variants. Uh, the New York City variant is more than 40%. The British variant is more than 25%. And so I'm concerned, you know, we're beginning to see an increase in the number of cases because of these variants, which are much more transmissible. Uh, so that's why we impress upon the importance of wearing a mask and we have to continue testing. We have to continue practicing social distancing. Um, you know, there's widespread COVID fatigue and I worry that too many people have become complacent uh, as we've come closer to uh, normalcy. Your district is majority Latino. Uh, this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said if someone tried to design an economic crisis that would unduly target the Hispanic community, they'd probably come up with something that looks like COVID-19. I mean, she just listed the sectors of the economy Hispanics work in have been hardest hit. 50% of revenues for Latino-owned businesses uh, were impacted by the shutdown. One in five Latino households say they don't have enough food to eat. I mean, the list of challenges is huge here. Where do you begin with your constituents? What's issue number one? Well, you're exactly right. COVID-19 has held up a mirror to the deepest inequalities in the country. Uh, the South Bronx is, racial, is ground zero for racially concentrated poverty. And the unemployment rate could be as high as 25%. For me, nothing is more corrosive to civil society and to our economy than long-term unemployment. Uh, and that's why the American Jobs Plan is so critical, because it would create 15 million jobs over a 10-year period. Uh, and the vast majority of those jobs would be available to those without a college education. So we're targeting the communities that historically have been left behind by economic dislocation. You're talking about the plan that the Biden administration is now putting forward, but you've also said it's not nearly big enough. So are you saying that you do support it, even though you've also criticized it? Well, it's, it's a historic in investment in our country. You know, we've been plagued by decades of disinvestment that have made the United States less productive, less competitive, uh, less innovative, and less resilient in the face of catastrophic climate change. Uh, the president's plan represents the largest investment in our workforce and infrastructure in more than a half a century. No plan is perfect. Um, I have constructive criticisms, but there's no question that it would fundamentally change the trajectory of our country not only here at home, but abroad. What's your criticism? Uh, specifically on the affordable housing piece. So I'm, I'm a product of public housing, um, and so I'm on a mission to ensure that public housing gets its fair share of the American Jobs Plan. You know, in New York City, public housing has been so savagely starved of federal funding that it has $40 billion worth of capital needs. So you have children who have been poisoned by lead in their homes because of federal disinvestment. You have senior citizens who are freezing in their homes with boilers breaking down because of federal disinvestment. 
Uh, the plan only proposes $40 billion. Public housing in New York City alone has a $40 billion, billion capital need. So we need at least $70 billion to fully address the humanitarian crisis in public housing. You know, New York Democrats um, and Speaker Pelosi herself have said that uh, they want to see some changes to this bill, including tax relief for state and local uh, governments, the so-called SALT tax. It, I mean, Chuck Schumer has called this a dagger at the heart of New York. Are they out of step with your constituents or is the White House out of step with your constituents? Where do you fall on this? Well, I certainly support uh, the restoration of SALT deductibility, uh, but my highest priority is a permanent child tax credit. You know, as you said, I represent what is said to be the poorest congressional district in America, and there's no policy that would do more to lift the South Bronx out of poverty uh, than the child tax credit. Before the American Rescue Plan, the structure of the child tax credit was so regressive that it left behind a third of American children, 27 million children in America. And so my highest priority is to see a permanent expansion of the child tax credit. Because for me, right, which is a not permanent in child this tax bill. credit would be for children what Social Security has been for senior citizens. Which, to be clear, what you're asking for is not in this bill, uh, and neither is yes. the, the addressing the SALT tax that I asked you about. Thank you, Congressman, uh, for your view today into your district. We will be right back. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Welcome back to Face the Nation. As long as the virus circulates around the globe, it remains a threat. According to the World Health Organization, more than 30 countries have not yet started vaccinating their population, including almost, as you can see there, the entire continent of Africa. COVAX is the largest global vaccination program in history and aims to distribute donated vaccines to countries that may not be able to purchase them. Dr. Seth Berkeley is the co-head and joins us from Geneva, where it is into the evening on Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're talking about that global immunity gap here. Uh, April 7th, that's Wednesday, is when the World Health Organization wanted all countries to begin administering vaccine. Is there any way to meet that goal? Well, we are on our way. We've vaccinated 84 um, countries or, or put, brought vaccines into 84 countries over the last about six weeks. We hope to get over 100 in the next couple of weeks. But I think the big challenge here is the inequity that we talk about between developed countries and developing countries. Of course, as you said, we are only safe if everybody is safe. And nothing tells us this like the new variants, because if we have large populations that are not vaccinated, then there is the risk that we will see new variants pop out and they will continue to spread across the world, as we've seen with this virus has been able to do up until now. So the first uh, COVAX provided doses began um, 
uh, arriving on the continent of Africa in February. But as we just saw on that map of the 54 countries, I mean, there are big deserts here, essentially, where vaccine doses are not being distributed. What is the biggest impediment? Is it supply or is it the logistics to deliver shots in arms? So the logistics have come along. Uh, of course, we work, the Gavi Alliance, which I head, is a public-private partnership that works to provide vaccines for developing countries. And we provide about 50% of the world's children's with vaccine. We've been able to launch 500 vaccines over the last 20 years. So the logistics is not bad. The big challenge right now is access to vaccines. Um, we have uh, gone ahead and placed orders for more than 2 billion doses, but the majority of those are coming in the second half of the year. And in the first half of the year, there, because of vaccine nationalism, has meant that there are less doses available. So that's our biggest challenge now. If we had more doses, we could make those available. Vaccine nationalism, you're talking about governments essentially favoring their own population rather than shipping necessarily their doses abroad. The outbreak in India, I know, has uh, caused some real slowing of their exports. How badly has that set you back? So India is by volume the largest supplier of vaccines for the developing world. And because of the new wave of outbreaks in India right now, the Indian government has stepped up their vaccination programs. And that has meant that they've required more doses, which means that they've met, made less doses available for the rest of the world. Um, we had expected in, in March and April about 90 million doses, and um, we suspect we'll get much, much less than that, and that is a problem. But we're in a race because we also see wealthy countries beginning to cover much of their population. And our hope is that they will begin to make their vaccines available to the rest of the world, including ones that they may not use. For example, the U.S. not only has Moderna, Pfizer, and J&J, &J, but they also have uh, vaccines from Novavax and, of course, from AstraZeneca. Those mm -hmm. could be made available, and they would make a big difference in terms of, of the supply for the world. Are you going to ask the U.S. government to donate its supply of AstraZeneca? Well, the U.S. has been a fabulous supporter of Gavi and of COVAX, and uh, they recently uh, provided a very substantial uh, financing of about $4 billion. Right. Um, uh, what we're talking about now is ultimately getting access to the large manufacturing facilities. I mean, the, the U.S. invested heavily at the beginning in a scaled-up manufacturing and invested again in scaled-up. Once the U.S. needs are met, those facilities really could be used to come online for the rest of the world, which could help stop the acute pandemic. Our goal would be by the end of this year to stop the acute pandemic, which is critical for global health security. So President Biden, though, he has an America first vaccine policy, which is we will not ship our doses out and donate them until Americans are fully vaccinated. That is the policy. The U.S. taxpayer has provided about $4 billion, as you said. So what are you doing with the money you have now? 
So the financing we have now is what we're using to pay for the more than 2 billion doses we've ordered. But as I've explained, many of those are in the second half of the year. And it really is critical for countries that are now seeing new variants spread and seeing acute disease for them to get vaccines early to protect their health workers, to protect their elderly and their most vulnerable. And that's really what we want to do as quickly as possible in every single country. So uh, is there an alternative to the U.S. Uh, I mean, China has gotten a lot of attention for its efforts to push its vaccine. Russia is trying to sell its vaccine to countries in Europe right now. Europe's really struggling itself, and, and that is a wealthy area. Um, is there an alternative to U.S. supply, or do you really need America to step up? So, I mean, there are many suppliers across the world, and it's not just the U.S. that has an opportunity to share doses they may not be using. So this is not about taking doses away from America. This is about strengthening America's global health right. security by taking advantage of some vaccines that may not be used. So it is unlikely, and Tony Fauci said um, the other day that um, he thinks it's unlikely that the U.S. will ever get to the AstraZeneca vaccine, given right. the supplies it has of the other vaccines. So if that's the case and those vaccines can be made available quickly, that would then help other countries. For us, the challenge is making sure that the only vaccines that we use are ones that of high quality and we know are efficacious. So we require stringent regulatory approval. And that is why it's taken some time, because as new vaccines come online, they have to go through that complex regulatory process to make sure they're safe and effective. Because if we had a problem with a vaccine, it could affect all vaccinations around the world. So we have to be very careful with safety as our key priority going forward. All right, Dr. Berkeley, good luck. We appreciate Thank your time you so today. Much. Native American communities have seen the highest rates of coronavirus cases, hospitalizations, and deaths of any racial or ethnic group in this country. Jonathan Nez is president of the Navajo Nation, which considers itself the largest tribe by land and population and spans Northeast Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret, and happy Easter and happy Resurrection Sunday to all your viewers. Thank you for that. Um, why have indigenous people been hit so hard by COVID? Well, Margaret, I think uh, this pandemic here has revealed some of the deficiencies in all of our healthcare systems throughout the country, uh, more so in Native American communities, 400, over 500 uh, tribes throughout the country <clears throat> have been uh, working hard to push back on this virus. And as many viewers may know that uh, the Indian Health Services oversees the healthcare system. And the Indian Health Service has been underfunded since its inception. And so we are, uh, the healthcare professionals are utilizing the limited resources that they have, but then have been doing an outstanding job. And I wanna say thank you to our healthcare workers here on the Navajo Nation, our frontline lawyers. Indian Health Services and the Navajo Nation employees for doing an outstanding work, pushing back on the virus and as well as bringing confidence to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. At the middle of last year, the Navajo Nation had a higher infection rate than any single state in the U.S. But you're saying you are, it seems, having some success with distributing the vaccine. How have you persuaded your community to take it? 
Well, right now, the Indian Health Service, the Navajo area here, has received 200, uh, I'm sorry, 246,000 plus doses. And of those, 219,661 have gone into the arms of our Navajo people. That's 89.3% of what was given to the nation are uh, given to the Navajo people. 88,889 of our Navajo people are fully vaccinated. And I, again, just wanna say thank you to our healthcare professionals. And we've been having uh, town hall meetings as you may know we had Dr. Fauci on our town hall meeting, Dr. Burla from Pfizer, and just answering the Navajo people's questions uh, about the virus and also our leaders taking the vaccine on television. And I think uh, just because of how hard hit the Navajo, pe- Navajo nation was, we've mm-hmm. seen a, a big uh, increase in um, participation in taking the vaccine. So I uh, I really commend the uh, the people uh, that have been fighting and pushing back on this virus. As you may know, Margaret, 30 to 40 percent of our Navajo people don't have running water here in the most powerful country in the world. And that has contributed to the, uh, the high cases early on. But, uh, you know, with the help of, of everyone, including our congressional delegation, our yeah. leaders, you know, educating them. You know, they have been uh, forthcoming with resources, and we see that in the American Rescue Plan Act that has been recently mm-hmm. approved. That, that I just want to underscore that because it, it was a shocking statistic when your communications director told us that 30 to 40 percent of your people do not have running water. Um, do you have assurances on how the money will be spent, this federal aid that you're talking about? And I added to that, the Biden administration still doesn't have an appointed head of the Indian Health Services. So why are you so confident these things are going to be addressed? Well, the acting uh, director right now, Elizabeth Fowler, has been working directly with the Navajo Nation, as well as we've been working uh, straight with the White House. We have finally have, have a seat at the table here in getting our information and our advocacy addressed. And it's, it's a really, you know, with the funds that are coming uh, to the citizens of this country in terms of recovery and rescue. This uh, this time around, it's finally uh, helping our nation grow. And it's all about nation building here in indigenous communities throughout the country and really focusing on self-determination. You know, our economy has been hit hard because we were able to um, in, in implement some very strict protocols. You know, we had lockdowns. We have a mask mandate, which helped which hurt our economy, but we are uh, moving out of that uh, high cases. And just a couple of weeks ago, first time ever in six months, we had zero cases and zero deaths in 24 hours. So I commend the Navajo people for listening to the healthcare professionals and their leaders. And I wish that other jurisdictions throughout the country would do the same. The CDC says um, Native Americans are twice as likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, have a greater prevalence of obesity and alcoholism, and are more likely to be smokers. All of these things are a recipe for uh, susceptibility to COVID-19. What are you doing to promote a healthy, healthier li- lifestyle? Well, in indigenous communities, we are returning back to a lot of our uh, teaching. Uh, if you look through our world lens, our world view, you know, a lot of 
uh, our teaching can really push back on these uh, health issues, uh, some of these, um, we call them monsters here on the Navajo Nation, these modern day monsters, alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, suicide, and we are really encouraging our, our Navajo citizens to return to uh, some of our teachings, our way of life teachings, mm -hmm. so that we could be able to push back. And I think that is one of the big reasons on the Navajo Nation we were able to push back on this virus. It wasn't about restricting people's freedoms when we told people to wear a mask or to stay home. It was looking at the greater good. And the greater good here was to protect your family, protect your community. And I think because of that, we were able to uh, let our people know that we will uh, get through this pandemic just as we have gone through some very tough times in our history and all indigenous peoples, I guess all five finger beings have some uh, you know, difficult times in their history and more so in Native American communities. But I just wanna highlight, uh, Margaret, that you know, indigenous peoples throughout the country are very resilient, even though sometimes mm -hmm. the federal government is slow to react in Indian country. But we didn't roll over, we didn't give up. We fought hard and yeah. I commend uh, Navajo citizens for doing uh, their mm -hmm. best to push back this virus. All right, President Naz, good luck. Thank you for your time Thank this you. morning. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Arrivals of unaccompanied children at the southern border reached an all-time monthly high in March. And the pace of migrants crossing the border does not appear to be slowing down. Sister Norma Pimentel is executive director of the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley, and she joins us this Easter morning. Happy Easter, sister. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. So for our audience, I just want to describe your organization, the role you play. Um, you provide assistance to migrants who are seeking refuge here in the U.S. Uh, they often meet you after they've been released from U.S. custody and told to come back for a court appearance uh, in the future when they're asking for asylum. I'm wondering, since you have been on the border for so long, what are you seeing with your own eyes right now? What are migrants like when they are arriving here? Yes, what I'm seeing today is what we've seen already for several years back, surges of families arriving to our border that leave their country because what's happening in their country has not changed. It continues to be a place where they are afraid to be there for their children. And so what we see a lot here at the border, since 2014, we saw it in great surges, children unaccompanied and families, moms with their kids, and even in 2019, throughout, up in today, we're, it's no different. We're seeing it again. And so it's just families that are hopeful that entering the United States, they may be safe. And that's what they're looking for. And it's not it's not different. And that's why we have so many children in, here at the border as, as now again. What state are the migrants arriving in? You know, the, the conditions that they arrived, you know, uh, in 2014, it was devastating what I was seeing with the, 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 
the families and the children dirty and muddy and crying and dehydrating and uh, scared. And today they are, they definitely are, uh, you can see it in their faces that they're scared, that they've been through so much, um, but they're, they're uh, hopeful, you know, hopeful that maybe now they have a chance to be somewhere safe because they have been through a lot. This journey that they take uh, from their country through the, all along the path they go through, people taking advantage of them. You can see it in their faces and, and, and uh, what they've been through and having to wait in Mexico for so long also makes them very vulnerable and at, and at high risk. What you are referring to there is the so-called Remain in Mexico policy that President Biden just lifted when you said they were asked to remain there. Um, as, as you know, immigration is so politically fraught, and President Biden has been heavily criticized for lifting that Trump-era policy, also for allowing migrant children who arrive unaccompanied to stay here, uh, even though on, on paper the policy is to push back during the pandemic anyone coming to claim asylum. I know you're not political, but I'm wondering what you think is driving migration right now. Is it the message from the U.S., or is it what's happening at home? You know, it, it the message from what is happening in the United States is just utilized by those who take advantage of these families, who exploit these families, who, t who try to use them, whatever's happening here, to convince them that uh, whether it's who, no matter who it's in office, who, no matter what's happening here, it's used to their advantage to get these families out and encourage them to come, you know, and because they're desperate to leave their country because of the situations that are there. No, it, it's almost as if we've never seen it addressed. The root causes why these families come are going to continue to come and we're going to continue to see these surges and these great numbers of children, especially children here at our border. And, and the traffickers, they use this to their advantage. And so it doesn't matter whether or who is in office or what is happening here. Uh, the message is twisted and, and used for their advantage. And so I think that contributes a lot why these families are all of a sudden surges at some points and then others, you know. And of course, there's so many factors involved, but that may be one of them. The Biden administration has outsourced a, a good deal of the COVID testing to local agencies and to organizations like yours. I know you have to provide a lot of these services. How challenging is that? What kind of resources do you need? You know, uh, there's so many families arriving, so many children. And so uh, being able to provide uh, hundreds and hundreds of toothpaste, toothbrushes, uh, just basic things a, a person needs just to be okay is is uh, it's a challenge in itself. But thanks to the generosity of so many people that reach out and say, how can I help you? And and even the present government is, is reaching out and wanting to help as well. So I think that 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 together we can respond and we can address what is happening at the border. And that's what's happening right now. Definitely the numbers are high. And I can see why the children are not being sent back because of the fact that they run a big risk. You have to keep the child safe. And, and especially if they're on a company, they can, you cannot just send them mm -hmm. back like they're sending everybody else. They have to be protected. They, wanna, they need to be processed correctly to make sure they are handed over to their, the right family uh, member. And so um, that's why we're seeing such high numbers of children right now. Time Magazine referred to you as the Pope's favorite nun. 
Um, <laughs> I know when you met him a few years back, you presented him with a painting of a mother and child. I, I wonder what your message to him was about this unique part of America and whether you would like the current president and vice president to come down and meet with you at the border. I always encourage everyone to come down and see for themselves, because if you get close enough, like I get close enough to the families and accompany them and see for them yourself, you can be able to really, truly understand better what is happening and, and feel what I feel so that we can reach out to help, you know, because honestly, this is should not be about politics. It needs to be about people, because that's what we're seeing here at the border. And I, the Holy Father's recognition was recognizing all of us doing what we were doing to where we reach out to those that we see mm -hmm. before us suffering. And, and so I, I certainly hope that our okay. present, uh, president joins us and comes down and, and accompanies right. us so that he can see for himself. Thank you, sister, for your time today. Good luck to you. We will continue to explore inequity in America as best as we can, and we will try to look at solutions for closing the gaps. Thank you for watching and wish all of you who celebrate Easter a very happy one. We'll see you next Sunday. I'm Margaret Brennan for Face the Nation. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors Dr. Cecilia Rouse, Gavi CEO Dr. Seth Berkley, Congressman Richie Torres of New York, Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, and the Executive Director of the Catholic Charities of Rio Grande Valley, Sister Norma Pimentel. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. 
Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.